Hello, and welcome to the Healed Podcast, the place where we can talk about all things food, body, and mind from an anti-diet and weight-inclusive lens. My name is Marie-Pierre, or you can call me Marie, and I am your host. I'm a registered dietitian with a background in psychology, and I specialize in food relationship and body image. And I am the founder and CEO of The Balance Practice, a treatment center for eating disorder and disordered eating. Every week on the podcast, you will hear from myself, the team at The Balance Practice, and other providers who have dedicated their careers in supporting folks to have better relationship with food and their bodies. On this podcast, we aim to provide a safe space to have these deep and juicy conversations regarding eating disorder, disordered eating recovery, health, relationship, body image, and honestly, anything we believe will support you in living your big, beautiful life. We believe in the power of healing, and hopefully this podcast will be a great addition to your toolbox in your healing journey. Thank you for tuning in today, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast and welcome back to October. (laughs) Welcome back. I mean, it's been October for a while now, but I hope that we are doing well today. I'm really excited about today's podcast episode. So last week we talked about physical activity and eating disorders. And this week we're talking about athletes and eating disorders. So we know that with athletes, it can be a little bit different the way that we're going to approach treatment in eating disorder, especially if they're competing athletes. I'm really excited today because we have Don Lundin, who is a registered dietitian who specializes in eating disorder care for athletes on the podcast to talk about this specific intersection. So Dawn is an athlete herself who really understands those nuances in treatment when we are supporting athletes with their eating disorder recovery. I'm really excited for today's conversation because we were able to talk about the different aspects of supporting an athlete in care and involving the coach and the team and how that looks like for someone who is an athlete and where sports is such a big part of their identity, still move towards recovery. I hope that you're going to love this episode as much as I do, and let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Don here with us. Hello, Don. Hi. How are you today? I am well. Thank you for asking. I'm so excited for today's podcast episode. I think it's going to be a really good one. We've talked about like movement quite a bit on the podcast, but I really love the angle that you're going to be bringing in today. Before we get into today's topic, I'd love to get to know you more and your origin story and what got you to do the things that you do today. My story sounds very, well, I don't want it to come off as like very fairy fairy tale-esque. I always give the disclaimer when talking about my career and my job that I've always taken every opportunity that comes my way with a question to myself, like, what if I went down this path? A lot of my roles, I haven't really like been searching for a job or searching for something. And even how I got into nutrition was that same type of thing, like the opportunity kind of presented itself to me. And I was like, oh, what if I became a dietitian? And So I always will tell like students and other folks who kind of like hear what's gone on in my career with that same kind of question. Like it's always been a what if. I love to write. And so I went into college planning to work for a hospital in the public relations field. And one of my college roommates was going to nursing school and she had taken a nutrition course and said, Dawn, I really think you would live 
this professor. So I took the course and by the end of the semester, I had decided that I was going to become a dietitian. And I also got myself a job working with this research professor in nutrition. And when I you know, went through schooling and applied for my dietetic internship, I ultimately wanted to move back home, which is in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And I was going to school in Minnesota at the time. And ironically, the hospital where I was interning at was the hospital where I was born. And that was something that was really like full circle to me. And so I was very honored to have gotten a job right out of my internship in the hospital I was born at. And I also got a job working in the ICU, which is the intensive care unit. So I was providing nutrition support for patients who couldn't eat normally like most folks can. And while that was not something you would ever expect me to say, like, this is what I'm going to be doing fresh out of college, fresh out of my internship. Again, when the opportunity presented itself to me, I was like, why not me? Right? Like, why not? And I worked there for five years until my oldest son was born. And I really thought I could do, you know, I could stay at home for part time. I could work in the ICU part time. And I felt like it would be a really good fit until baby was born and I was back from maternity leave. And I was trying to juggle all of the tasks of being a new mom and also the tasks of caring for these very sick individuals. Individuals. Around that same time, I had been invited to start teaching at a local university for their school of nursing. And it kind of organically was a great transition from working in the ICU and becoming a mom to being able to have a more flexible schedule. And most of my kind of job roles after that have really been about flexibility. So I worked in long-term care for a while. I taught at the university up until um, this last semester. And and in 2021, I was doing virtual school with my two older sons. And I had gotten to a point with my job where I was having to really reestablish a lot of work-life boundaries. And I had the opportunity to work with a student athlete at the university where I taught. And I was able to apply my knowledge of nutrition from a clinical standpoint. So when I worked in the hospital to my knowledge in sports nutrition, and then also as an endurance athlete athlete myself. And I just had this idea, like, what if this could be my job? Like, what if I could do this? And so I started the research, right? Like, I just was like, again, like, oh, I really felt like this was something that I needed to kind of pursue. So in February of 2021, Restore Ease Dietetics was born. And I started my job as a nutrition entrepreneur, a private practice owner. We specialize in mental health and sports nutrition. Nutrition. We see a lot of folks with eating disorders, and we also see a lot of athletes with eating disorders. And it's been one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences to date in my career, I would say. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you so much for like sharing all that. And I love all your like twists and turns, <laughs> and like what got you to be here and being so passionate about your work with athletes and with folks with eating disorders coming from just everything that happened. Like I find like always looking back at stories and hearing people's stories on the podcast, I'm like, life is so interesting, <laughs> right? And I always yes. feel like the universe has a plan for us because we always end up where I feel like we're, we're meant to be. So that's super, super interesting. Today, we're talking about athletes and we're talking about eating disorders. And 
I'd love for us to just talk about this intersection to start off. Like it's such an interesting intersection. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about why do you think those two intersect so much and what do they maybe have in common and how do they maybe like almost like multiply together? Yeah, yeah. It's so, that's such a great and timely question because I really truly feel that the reason why there's such an intersection between athletes and eating disorders is the emphasis that our culture puts on performance and what if the size of a physical body or what a physical body looks like, whether it's aesthetics or or color of the skin, right? There's so many things that can be placed on that physical body. And there are so many factors that I want to say there, I just recently went to a, a conference and there was like 48 factors or something like that, that affect performance. Yet so often when we're looking at folks in the athletic field, whether it's, you know, coaches or athletic trainers or strength coaches or athletes themselves, we tend to really focus in on diet and exercise Mm -hmm. as things that we feel as athletes that we can control. And we think that the effort put into controlling those two things will then give us the highest benefit, right? Heavy air quotes in the athletic performance realm. And I think that's why we see a lot of athletes with eating disorders is because the strongest predictor of an eating disorder is dieting or restricting. And we know that if an athlete is wanting to perform better, society tells us or that the message that's being told is that athletes in a smaller body typically perform better. And so most folks internalize that messaging and we get it even in non-athletes. And that's why I think we see so many athletes with eating disorders is because they're not naive or they're not numb to the diet culture messaging that we see in society. And then I feel like there's this extra layer of pressure from those around them, whether it's coaches or whether it's teammates and things like that. Yeah. And I feel like being an athlete also gives you a really good reason why you're over-exercising and like counting your macros and doing all the things. Like it's so normalized in like those environments that like nobody really asks questions. If your training was six hours today, you're like, yeah, for sure. Because, you know, I'm an athlete. So I feel like there's also a lot of like those disordered eating patterns that are like normalized even more when you are an athlete. Yes, absolutely. And especially too, if we look at like when athletes, you know, if they've been in that sport their whole life, we can see there's a period of time where as an individual, you model your food choices after your parents. And usually that's like childhood up until those preteen years. So say like anywhere from like 10 to 12. And after that, we start modeling our food choices after our... So first it's after parents and then it's after peers. So when athletes are starting to get more competitive in their sport, they're starting to make more of their own food choices. They do start to become a product or they start to absorb the food habits of their peers. And if you're on a team, it's going to be your teammates. And so if they're traveling, if they're going to practice. And so one thing that I really try to do when I'm speaking to teens, because I love working with 
adolescent athletes, they're like my favorite, is that encouraging them to be a good role model, meaning asking each other about what did you bring for a pregame meal or snack? Like, what are you going to have for a postgame meal? And, you know, what do you have in your bottle today? Like really just trying to be encouraging on making sure that adequacy, like eating enough and supporting our body so we can fuel and perform well versus the opposite. Whereas a lot of those athletes think that like getting by with little or barely enough is like that they're going to get an extra medal for that. It's like you don't get any team points for being underfueled. That's just only going to cause problems for you. Mm-hmm. That's like such a good point. And I'm like curious, like in your experience, like how common are eating disorder, disordered eating in the athletic like population? It is the bulk of the work that I do. Yeah. <laughs> It is the bulk. It is the majority of the work that I do. And granted, I have athletes that come to me because I'm an endurance athlete myself and because I have a very, what I would consider a unique approach to treating eating disorders in athletes. And that's where as long as athletes are medically stable, I try to keep their physical activity into the mix as much as I can, because in my experience, these individuals are going to be active their entire life. And it's much easier to help them navigate their movement along with their recovery than to completely take it away and then try to like figure out the right time to move it back into their life. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, because in like a lot of like eating disorder treatment, if the exercise is competing with the energy that is intaked by the person, movement is removed for the table for a while just to make sure that the body can heal. But I'm really curious if we can talk a little bit more about how that would look like for an athlete. Like, is there a time that we would still want to take that movement out or like, how would we handle both at the same time? A lot of the times what can be really helpful is, you know, so if an, an athlete is not medically stable to continue competing, then obviously that's competing or practicing are kind of two different conversations that I have with the athlete and or their support team. And if it's safe for them to continue to practice and can safe for them to continue to compete, a lot of it can be based off of either engaging in eating disorder behaviors or like how much of their meal plan that they're willing to, that they're able to consume. So for instance, if an athlete's team is practicing X many days a week and that athlete doesn't want to miss any practices, then if that athlete is utilizing like a structured meal plan, then we base it off of that physical activity level. And so if the athlete's not able to meet those meal plan guidelines, then we have to back off on days that that athlete's able to show up for practice. And I don't want it to just sound like a simple reward system, right? Like you're not trying to penalize. You're just being very upfront with the athlete and saying, these are your body's needs for recovery and for that level of activity. And I want you to be able to show up as much as you're you want to. So let me help you get there. And then we kind of work it from there. Yeah. What I find interesting with what you're saying, it's almost like the sport and the demand on the sport potentially contributes to the development of eating disorders, but the sport can also contribute to the recovery of the person because it can be such a great recovery goal to get back to a sport that we love so much. So it's such an interesting like duality. Yes. Yeah. And everyone is different, right? Every athlete is different. And I know there's some clinicians who feel very strongly that like activities should not be included at all. And I feel like it's a very, like agree, like it can be a very great motivator for recovery. And these athletes are likely going to be active for the rest of their life, even if they're engaging in a different sport than they are in like high school or college. Mm -hmm. I 
And so it's something they're always going to have to navigate, right? Their, their movement demand with their bodies, just kind of baseline nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. And so when you're teaching them to do that as they're recovering, they have that skill set then for life. Mm -hmm. And I always tell my athletes, my clients, I'm like, I don't plan to see you for the rest of your life. My plan is to help support you and give you the tools so that you will continue using those tools like for the rest of your life. I'm like, I hope you think of me when you're, you know, if you're doing something or if you're honoring your hunger or if you're, you know, doing a certain thing that reminds you of something I've, I've encouraged you to do or, or told you about. And that's, yeah, that, that's the hope is that they'll, they'll get the support they need and that that will continue to carry them and to continued recovery. Yeah, no. And I love that so much. And I have a very similar approach with folks with eating disorders, even with non-athletes, like if we can reintroduce movement earlier in treatment and it can provide, like for me, even in the piece of like body image and body connection, like movement can be such a great, great way that we build like gratitude to your body and connect to the body that we live in. And we kind of like that, that somatic therapy too, of like connecting to the body that we have it can be very pro recovery, but I think it's just like, are we counterbalancing it properly? <laughs> So it's yeah. not and like the intention behind it too. And I'm really curious to hear. So, I mean, eating disorder recovery can be really, really challenging and getting support is really important. I'm really curious to hear from you. Like what are some maybe specific challenges that athletes may have in their recovery compared to maybe other non-athlete folks? This podcast is brought to you by The Bounce Practice. The Bounce Practice is an eating disorder treatment center across Ontario. And we're really excited to announce that in November, we are going to be starting a new cohort of our eating disorder recovery program. This program is a comprehensive approach to treatment. It includes one-on-one session with a dietitian, therapist, meal support, group therapy, family support, and all care coordination. At The Bounce Practice, we do believe in a collaborative and client-centered approach to your care. And we want to provide you with all the service that you need to be able to fully recover from the comfort of your home. If you're interested in joining us in this next cohort, you can go to www.thebalancepractice.com forward slash ED program to apply today. All right, let's get back to the episode. Specifically, it's kind of like if you're looking at like a student athlete, a lot of the times they view their sport as like their job. So that means like you have all these expectations on yourself that sometimes they're really not able to tune in to like what their body needs. They're not able to kind of like give themselves grace. And in movement, sometimes they feel like there's this expectation on their practice schedule, their competition schedule. And it can add another layer of almost like comparison. Comparison comes up a lot for my clients who have eating disorders and athletes and Mm non-athletes. And so really trying to remind them about how recovery needs to be their number one goal. And that, yes, we always hope that we can continue recovery along with their sport, but that we might have to make some concessions. And that can be just a really hard thing for them to kind of like grasp. Whereas I feel like folks who aren't athletes, they don't have that added pressure of these expectations, their coaches, their team. And a lot of the times my athletes don't really want to tell their teammates or their coaches like what's going on. And what I've found is when they do, when they do share with their coaches and they share with their teammates, they almost, they get this like second source of support, right? That they're, they're feeling like more lifted up. And it also helps because I can advocate for these 
athletes with their coaches to being like, Hey, like this person, like, cause sometimes I think coaches, at least in my experience, they don't know a lot. They're not really sure. They don't know a lot about eating disorders. So they're not really sure like where they stand. And then the athlete doesn't really want to be penalized. They don't want to talk about it in front of their teammates. Maybe that was something that an, a coach or assistant coach said in passing and it was triggering for them. So yeah, there's just like so many layers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of the athletes with eating disorders, I feel like they're really hard on themselves about having an eating disorder in the first place. And then also feeling like they won't, that they'll be looked at differently than their teammates. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. I have a question about that, but also I just want to touch on, I can imagine that there's also a piece with the identity, like especially yes. with young teens that like your sport becomes your identity because your friends are there and like, it's what you do, right? Kind of like that piece of a job. So I can imagine too, that like, if it comes like, I may not be able to do my sport anymore, that like, that must be so difficult. Yeah. And I think that's why, and especially with a lot of the emphasis on like how physical activity contribute to mental health, you know, there's a lot of clients that come in, athletes that come in with eating disorders and they really are like their sport is really one of the only coping mechanisms they have for their anxiety or OCD or ADHD or even just managing their everyday life, right? Like a busy schedule, their training, their expectations that others have on them. And so if we can kind of like, I try to always think of them like, okay, we can have like, okay, your eating can't be your only coping mechanism and training can't be your only coping mechanism that if they're not already working with a therapist, getting them to work with a therapist or sports psychologist has also been really helpful in this area because it can it can get through that like self-talk. And a lot of the times when they know, okay, this athlete's working with a sports dietitian that specializes in eating disorders, they feel comfortable to take on some of the like self-talk and then even to help them navigate some of those coping strategies. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. A multidisciplinary approach to eating disorder recovery is just needed. Just what we need to do. Yeah, goodness. And I'm really curious. Do you find that with athletes, there's more denial when it comes to having an eating disorders because there's a lot of like, it's just a normalized with maybe their teammates or like maybe receiving pressure from their coach. Like, do you find that piece of denial more present? I feel like there may be a little bit, I don't know if denial is the right word. I feel like maybe a delayment in care initially is common Mm -hmm. with athletes. Maybe they have a season they're trying to get through or a race they're trying to get to. But I also know that that once they realize that there is something going on, they're often very like laser focused on like, we need to fix this problem. Similarly to like, if an athlete has an injury, right? Like they're like, what's the quickest way for me to get back on the field or, you know, back in the game or back on the road. And so I do find, especially in collegiate athletes that delay in treatment, especially if if it develops when an athlete is say in the beginning of fall semester and say, they don't go back home until Christmas break, right? Like sometimes it's not until they're back with their family or back around people who know them or that they feel like it's becoming a problem, right? If it's a if it's an eating disorder that maybe you can't tell from a physical standpoint that anything has changed with their relationship with food. Mm, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I'm really curious because oftentimes in eating disorder recovery, when we think of like end goal and where we want to get to, often folks will want to try to 
move towards like intuitive eating and like no longer dieting and all these things. And I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about how intuitive eating can or cannot work with athletes. Yeah. So when I first started my practice, like I love intuitive eating. I have like all the workbooks and I really thought that that would be like a big base of my practice. But because I have so many athletes with eating disorders, sometimes it's just not like sometimes athletes feel like when they start intuitive eating, they have to swallow all 10 principles, right? Like no pun intended. And what I try to really encourage them is to kind of like pick the ones that fit for them. So it's not that you're, again, it's not a diet, right? It's not something, it's not all these rules and you have to follow them because there are times in sport, especially like I speak personally as an endurance athlete, there are times in sport where you may not feel physically hungry, but if you do not eat, your performance is going to be affected down the road, right? Or same thing because effort and humidity can be such a big, like they can contribute to your appetite. So if someone has a really hard effort workout, they may not feel hungry for that post-workout meal, but it's important for their recovery and like the replenishment of all the effort they just put in. It's really important that they do have that recovery meal. So I think I like to teach athletes about how sport and about how these different environmental factors like heat and humidity can impact our hunger and fullness so that they can be aware of that. Because sometimes athletes think intuitive eating is just very simply eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. And I promise you, if athletes did that, more than likely they would be underfueled for their day-to-day stuff and their sport. Yeah. And I love that you debunked that because I think like that's definitely a general like misconception of intuitive eating of like, it's just about listening to your body. But it sounds like that piece of brain hunger, like we're not always hungry and we got to eat like <laughs> that is yeah. part of the of those concepts too so that's really interesting um that it still can be part but it's just i guess you make changes based on each person which i mm-hmm. believe is just how like it should be right like i don't yes. think there's one methods that we should like apply all the things at once and it's you know if one size fits all like i i do believe that it just becomes yeah something that you kind of personalize for yourself i think the biggest component of intuitive eating that i stress with my clients especially athletes is the unconditional permission to eat yeah. because again, with kind of having this thought that like, if I want my body to perform well, I have to eat a certain way. And I had one athlete share with me like that they were having a really hard time in the dining hall because they would go in with a plan on what they were going to eat. And then they get to the dining hall and there would be all of these other options. And so I just kind of like gently coaxed them and said like, well, what if you just ate what you felt like eating? Right. So again, there was an opportunity to practice that intuitive eating. And they said, no, but I feel like I should be eating something else. Like who's telling you to eat something else, right? And they were very specific about, they knew exactly what they wanted to eat. They were just weren't allowing themselves to eat it because they felt like they should be eating differently. Yeah. And so we we had that opportunity to talk about, you know, if you allow yourself to eat what you're craving and what your body's asking you to eat, you're not going to eat that one food forever. At one point, your body is going to ask you to eat something else. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because the athlete was just like, are you serious? And I'm like, I challenged them and I said, let me know how many days it takes until your body asks for something else. Like when you truly start listening to what your body is asking for, it will not ask for that one food forever. It won't, Mm -hmm. but that's everyone's fear, right? That it's going to, your body is going to choose the unhealthy food forever and it won't, it won't do it. (laughs) 
it's so it's so interesting it's and it's so true right and I wonder if that has to do with the fact that like you know some people do have that lived experience of like but when I allow myself to eat I do like binge or I go for that food all the time but it's like but the restriction is the issue it's actually yes. what you're doing prior to that but when you actually have unconditional permission to eat it's very different like food kind of loses a little bit of that power yeah that they once had and I'm curious to know your thoughts because oftentimes like tracking numbers or counting calories are maybe part of the disordered eating patterns and I'm wondering for athletes who may need to track in some way to make sure that they have enough like how can they do that without maybe re-triggering the eating disorder yeah so usually in that instance like when I'm using I call, I refer to them as like a structured meal plan I do that for my athletes and my client eating disorder clients from like using the dietary exchange system yeah. so it's not giving them a specific goal with numbers for calories or macronutrients it's it's giving them a structure on how they might plan their meals and snacks and so yes granted like they could there's ways to find these this information but I try to encourage them to just like okay you're working with me for a reason you trust that I'm the professional here you need to trust me that these are the this is the amount of food that you need each day and when athletes kind of have that consistency of eating enough this amazing thing happens like like getting back to that intuitive eating some of those intuitive eating principles is that their hunger actually starts to take over so Mm -hmm. Athletes who usually were very reliant on, you know, tracking and macronutrients and things like that, they can actually, the hunger, it's like kind of one of my favorite things because I feel like the hunger goes into overdrive where they can't ignore it. And a lot of the times the athletes have an an option, right? They can either honor that hunger and we talk about how that is a step towards intuitive eating and away from tracking and away from those things. And what they'll find is that when they lean into that hunger, then they can actually feel their fullness better. So, but it's, but it's a very scary step. Mm -hmm. And also acknowledging that if they lean into their hunger, that their body may or may not change, you know, and that is usually the hardest part about giving themselves the freedom to honor that hunger is that they're, they have worries about how that may affect their physical body. Yeah. I'm really curious for us to dig into this. What if weight restoration is needed? Like with those athletes, especially if they're in sports that are maybe more like geared toward the aesthetics, but you're like, but for their health, weight restoration is part of the recovery. Like how do you manage all of that? It's a lot of TLC and support and the the body image piece comes up a lot. And I, going back to what we were talking about, you know, how movement can be a really great like tool for like kind of motivation for recovery. I often, when we're talking about body image, because sport can make things sticky from a body image standpoint and comparison come up a lot, especially if you are in a sport with statistics, right? Like that's what lots of sports have stats right? You oftentimes these athletes, they need to know that what their body is capable of so they can shift from thinking about how their body looks and focusing more on what their body is capable of. And when they're continuing to show up for their sport, they have more data. They know if they're still hitting PRs in the weight room or on the field or what their kind of their stats are. And when athletes see that they can continue to perform well and even excel in recovery and at a restorative weight, that's the best form of evidence that they have against their eating disorder. You can't convince that athlete of that six months prior, a year prior. They need to actually have that evidence 
and feel it themselves. And so a lot of the times I'll just kind of share with them just kind of like how under fueling or how maybe some of the eating disorder behaviors is affecting their performance that maybe they aren't seeing yet. Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that. So many reframes and yes, lots of that. Yeah, and rooting a lot of the internalized fat phobia that we have around bodies, and especially that piece of like the athletic body type and what that's supposed to look like. I'd love for you to maybe like unpack that a little bit and maybe dem- demystify this idea of like a body type for sports. Yeah, it's interesting because what a physical body looks like is a compilation of so many factors, not just the physical training that's put mm-hmm. in, right? But like genetics and sleep and things like that. What you eat, how you train, how long you've been training. And so many folks just want to focus on the physical training and or what you're eating, right? Those two things. And so the thing that I always bring it back to, and I did this when I was teaching undergraduate nursing students or when I'm working with eating disorder clients who are also athletes, is I always shift it back to the Olympics, right? Like we look at the winter or the summer Olympics and we have all of these sports and we bring all of the athletes from all over the world who are at the top of their game, right? And if you look at all of those athlete bodies, they are all different. There is not one type that's the same. And I love that we can show up for these athletes and we can recognize, you know, you could recognize that like, okay, there's sports that maybe generally have bodies that are larger bodies. And you might have some sports that you would expect those athletes to be in a smaller body. But when you actually think about it, there's athletes of all sizes. It's a huge range. And we don't pick apart those athletes. We respect them, right? They're at the Olympics. And I always say, I wish that we could turn that respect and appreciation for bodies of all shapes and sizes to the regular daily life. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love that. I love that. Bring that piece of like body diversity at that level, but you never said anything because you're like, they're obviously really great, but I feel like sometimes there's something in our brain. We're like, but they're the exception though. For me, I need to like, yes. Oh, la, 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 la. So being able to continue to have these conversations that like, no, like your body will do your, what your body needs to do. Like there are the different, like, and you said like 48 different like performance factors that we can focus on, like let our body just need what it needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then also just like acknowledging that bodies change over to like bodies are meant to change that what your body, like, like think about like the, I mean, everybody has a picture of what they looked like when they were born. Right. So we don't look back at that baby picture and say like, oh, it's a shame. I don't look like that anymore. (laughs) But yeah, people want to do that for like their high school, you know, their senior photo or their PR from whatever race it was. And they're like, oh, it's a shame. I don't look like that anymore. And I'm like, yeah, no. Like, let's like, can we just stop, right? Like there is nothing to be gained by these unrealistic expectations, except that you're holding yourself back from, you know, an emotional, physical, mental level, you're just, you're holding yourself back. And when you can just stop and appreciate like what your body is capable of. And I share with my clients too, like even folks who don't have eating disorders and even folks who aren't athletes still have bad body image days. Mm -hmm. And I share that with them. I say, there's days where I wake up and I don't feel like all that in a bag of potato chips, but what can we do? Like we can still take care of our body. We can still nourish our body. We can think about, you know, what are my intentions for movement today? How can I give myself grace? Can I, what's my favorite clothing that I can wear that I can just put it on and then not 
think about it for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. What are the things that I can do to help support myself through this hour, this day, whatever it is, mm-hmm. because it's never been about the clothes. It's never been, or it's like never been about your body. Mm-hmm. We always want to blame our body when we feel badly about it, but it might just be, it's always some other factors. Mm-hmm. And so I always try to like get a little vulnerable with my, with my clients and my athletes and say like, I have bad body image days too. And, or share like, Hey, I've had three babies. I've competed like in the, like I haven't competed, but I've trained as an athlete, like running through three pregnancies. That's not a flex. That's not a flex, but my body has still changed. It's still changed. There's no way to prevent that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just giving them that little bit of like insight that like you can still show up for your body, even when it's changed, you can appreciate the differences that you have now. And I also support my athletes when they grieve the body they used to have. That's normal. That's a normal human reaction, but we don't have to do anything about that. We can just let it, we can just let it be. Mm, I just love everything that you're saying. I'm just like nodding my head like crazy. It's true. And it's this piece of like radical acceptance of this is my body here now. And I feel like if we grew up with these messages, man, <laughs> our relationship yes. with the body would have been so different. But just normalizing that piece, I think is just so beautiful. And you just said it so beautifully. And that, I think that's why I love working with adolescents is, is that same yes. thought that like, I think about like, if we're planting the seed now, when these teens are in their formative years, yeah, and because we do, we talk about the struggles like of eating more, right? We had athletes talking about like, I know I need to eat more, but it's really hard. And I said, what's hard about it? And they all shared, right? Like the struggles they're having with eating more. And they all got to hear each other say, Hey, I'm struggling with this too. And we said, okay, so what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Right. And when they all know that they're not alone and when they all know what's expected of them, right? Like we talk about the benefits of showing up to practice or to a game nourished and eating enough and eating well, they were just, it was so great to see, like, I still have the mental image of them all looking at each other and nodding their head. Like, yes, I can take care of myself and I can also take care of you because that's what we do as a team, right? And that's what we do when someone has an eating disorder or when someone is just, you know, a teammate, like we we support one another and we can find role models for poor decisions. And we can also find role models for positive decisions. Mm. And so I told those girls, I said, be a good role model for yourself and for your teammates. Mm-hmm. And I think if more athletes were approached with that message, I mean, I'm hoping the trends with eating disorders would change, right? I hope they would. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. And like eating disorders are such a shame-based yeah. you know, illness. So like the fact that we're like engaging community and like the power of community is just wild in many different illnesses, but really when it comes to eating disorders, because it's, it helps reduce the shame. So it does yeah. help us engage in recovery behaviors a lot more when we have kind of like our team or our community or other folks who understand and can support. So that's just like so beautiful. I have one last question for you because we've talked a lot on this podcast about mindful movement and joyful movement and like connecting to ourselves and our capacity and this idea that like we don't need to be as, as rigid with movement. So there can be, you know, we don't need to aim for like frequency or intensity. Like we can really connect with the body and with athletes, it can be different if there's like performance goals. So I'd love us to talk about maybe how we can include mindful movement with athletics and maybe in the times where it may look a little bit different 
different. Yeah. So definitely, you know, if, if it's an athlete who's training in like training blocks, like they usually will have an off season. So sometimes we try to build from that off season up as far as keeping in mind that that off season is going to have the most flexibility in their movement. So what do they want to do? Do they want to take that off season completely off? Do they want to strength train? Do they want to do yoga? Do they want to mountain bike? Like we can figure out like what is their needs and start there so that when the athletes are in more intense training, they know that that off season is always coming and think of it as like recess right? Like when we were kids and like, we were like, you know, stuck in our studies, it's like always like, oh, I have recess or, oh, I have study hall. Like I can, I can just like pass notes to my friends or, or whatever it is. People probably don't pass notes anymore. <laughs> but when I was in school, we did, we passed notes. We didn't have phones then. <laughs> so I think a lot of the times it's reminding them where they have room for flexibility. And then when they are in those like intense kind of like training cycles, especially when they are navigating an eating disorder or recovery through that training cycle is figuring out like, when can we work in flexibility? And that's why I love when I have the, like have a release from information to work with, to talk to my athletes, coaches about their recovery and where they're doing is because I feel like the, it gives the coaches a better idea of how the athlete is doing. And then we can also have that conversation of like some flexibility. What is often common in, in eating disorders with athletes is that Sometimes when given the flexibility, they won't take it. So like an optional workout may seem like I have to do this. This is on my training schedule. So it's almost better for an athlete with an eating disorder who's kind of navigating that is to actually not have an optional workout written in, but actually a rest day because then they'll take it as a rest day and not as, you know, because they're not really viewing it as an optional thing. Yeah. And so we talk a lot about that and about how the athlete is able to look at their training plan, if they see it as an absolute, then we have to make some adjustments. And usually, you know, athletes are usually very honest with me. And I say, hey, like, hey, I'm, I'm here to help you recover. And so, you know, I know some of these questions are hard. I know sometimes it's hard to like to share or to like really think about like how I talk about it, like the eating disorder has like a personality or has characteristics. And I'll call that out. I'll say like, your eating disorder is like really mean. And they'll be like, oh my gosh, yes, I know. And we'll talk about it like that, like, you know, or your eating disorder is really competitive. And they'll be like, yeah, I don't really feel like I'm that way. But I feel like my eating disorder keeps bringing up things in the past. And it's, I know it's getting me, you know, they'll say like, I know it's trying to get me to do X, but I know that that won't be helpful for my goals and my recovery. And so we really kind of just call it out and name it. And at first clients, you know, sometimes I feel it feels vulnerable for me to like talk in that way if we haven't engaged in that conversation yet. But I've never had a client once say my what my eating disorder voice like, but they all know they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love that. I love those nuances you brought, especially with the flexibility. That's so interesting. It makes me very similar to meal plans. Sometimes when there's too much flexibility, it's like the ED just overrides. And I think the one thing with the mindful movement too, especially in past podcast episodes we've talked about is this idea of like connecting to the body. So mindfulness is this idea of like being present without judgment, which I think it's such a good skill that athletes can also do, right? Like just being yes. able to engage in those movements. And probably even at a higher level, because I find oftentimes with 
athlete, like athletes, they are pretty good in connecting to their bodies because they kind of have to. So I feel like mindful movement can be such a cool way to engage a little bit more. And also asking the athlete, like, what do you want out of movement? So especially in that off season, like really asking them, like, what are you looking for? So if they're really looking for connection and rest to recovery, like maybe something like yoga is going to be a good fit for them. I know I often share, like I come from marathon running and recently got into mountain biking. And the thing I love about mountain biking is that when I'm on the trail, I cannot physically think about anything else except for what's in front of me, because then I will fall. I will go off the trail or I will fall. Whereas when I'm running, I've been doing it for so long. And it's, it's something that's so ingrained in my muscle memory that my mind wanders to places I don't know that I really wanted to go. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. And so we share how like the needs of movement, like what we need for movement, we we talk about how it's okay if that changes. Yeah. I love that so, so much. So before we finish the podcast, any last thoughts that you'd like to give athletes or, or tips or just, yeah, anything you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah. Just encouraging athletes, like if they are struggling with their relationship with food, even if they're unsure, like, Hey, like, is this disordered eating or like a actual like eating disorder as long like if you're recognizing that your relationship with food isn't where you want it to be, that you're worthy of support. The reason I talk about, you know, my practice working on mental health and sports nutrition is because I don't want folks to feel like they need to have an eating disorder diagnosis in order to get support. And so finding the right clinician, like we've talked about a multidisciplinary team and sometimes starting with a dietitian, and then, you know, eventually adding a therapist, or maybe it's the other way around that there are people out there who would love to help and support you and cheer you on through whatever phase of sport or life you're in. And please reach out and give them an opportunity to help you because I always said you're worthy of support. I love that so, so much. So where can people find you? Yeah. So we are www.restoreeasedietetics.com. We're also on Instagram, Restore Ease Dietetics. And you can also find us on Facebook, Restore Ease Dietetics, LLC. Awesome. And all of that guys will be in the show notes. You'll be able to just scroll down, go click on it, go find her, go stalk her, all the things. Before we finish today, we'll just finish with the fun questions. The first one being, what is your favorite food? Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to say this changes from time to time, but burgers are definitely like the hands down favorite food. We have a really good food truck here called the Burger Bus. And they make delicious burgers and fries. Perfect post-race meal for me. And coincidentally, I always get a stomachache if I eat a burger before a run. So it's one of those, again, like going into like intuitive eating that sometimes I really want a burger before a run, but it's actually just something that doesn't sit well in my stomach. So So you're like, this is a post-run meal. This is a post-run, post-competition meal for me. Yep, absolutely. I I love it. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oh. I think a flying would be great. Mm, I love that. Yeah, flying is a popular one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is your favorite way to self-care? Definitely, and this is a little bit cliche because we've been talking a lot about movement, but it is spending time outside moving my body. I have 
three young kids and I don't get a lot of time. And granted, I love to spend time with them. We do a lot outside as well, but you won't find me like, you know, you, I won't be called like a gym rat or anything like that. Like if I have an opportunity to get outside and engage in movement, whether it's paddle boarding, cross country skiing, biking, running, hiking with my family, those are the things that really just like fill me up. Oh, I love that. And then the last question for you, what does balance mean to you? Balance is this mystical creature that we (laughs) all are told that we can achieve, but it's actually never realistic. That's what balance is to me. It's more prioritizing. I feel like I'm going to take balance and cross the word out and then write like prioritizing, that you're always going to have things that pull you in different directions and you just have to decide which thing you're going to prioritize. And it's never going to feel balanced. And so I feel like I've had times in my life where I'm chasing that feeling and feeling very discouraged when it's not attainable. And so if you really just reflect and say like, what am I prioritizing today or in this moment or in this hour? To me, it's more fluid. It's more flexible. Yeah. I love that. Balance is like imbalance. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast down. This was such a great conversation. Um, And for everybody listening, again, you can go in the show notes to get all of the information. And I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode. I hope that you really enjoyed this podcast. Let me know if you've learned anything on our latest Instagram post at The Bounce Practice. Dawn was such a pleasure to talk to. She's such a wealth of knowledge when it does comes to athlete and eating disorder work. And I hope that you got to learn something from it. And if you did, please share, like, and review this podcast. On that note, my friend, I'll catch you next week in the next episode. <music>